What I think that people have to realize is if it's a form of digital gold that also has exchange value, medium exchange properties, that's super exciting. And, and the government uh, should be embracing that, should be hodling itself, you know, starting to understand what it is, not be looking to ban it any more than if you saw a new form of gold that became valuable. Would you just try to go bury it back in the soil? No, I mean, you'd adjust and you recognize how this new value can help your society, can help your economy. This is the Blue Collar Bitcoin Podcast, a show where average Joe firefighters explore the most important monetary technology of the 21st century. We talk Bitcoin, we talk finance, and we talk shit. Good day, my lads and ladies, and thanks for stopping by another episode of the Blue Collar Bitcoin Podcast. Today, Josh and myself, Dan, are joined by Jason Brett. Jason worked for the FDIC during the Great Financial Crisis. He's a former director of operations at the Chamber of Digital Commerce. And most recently, he's the founder and CEO of the Value Technology Foundation. This 501c3 is beyond cool. It has a specific mandate to educate government officials and organizations regarding Bitcoin and distributed ledger technology. Jason has a profound understanding of government and regulatory affairs, and above all else, he is a true, no-holds-barred Bitcoiner. This was a seriously informative discussion. We covered a ton of topics, but our main focus was unpacking the current Bitcoin regulatory and legislative landscape. Jason is well worth a follow on Twitter, at Jason underscore VTF. As always, you can follow us on Twitter at Blue underscore Collar BTC. If you are enjoying the show and you're interested in supporting us, check out the support section down in the show notes. If you have any questions, comments, or inquiries for Josh or myself, Dan, hit us up at bluecollarbitcoinpodcast at gmail.com. Now, do us a favor, chill out, block out the world around you, and enjoy some good old-fashioned Bitcoin education. All views and language expressed by the hosts and guests in this podcast are solely their personal opinions and do not reflect their employers or organizations they are associated with. Do not treat any of the content in this podcast as investment advice or as an inducement to follow a particular strategy. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Folks, welcome back into the Blue Collar Bitcoin Podcast. This is Dan. I'm joined by Josh and our guest today, Jason Brett. Jason, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, guys. It's a real pleasure. It's been a long morning for me, gentlemen. Came off duty this morning at 8 a.m., long shift day, flat tire on the way home, at a Starbucks, by the way, to glean this uh, venti iced coffee, which I'm pretty excited about. Just drove on the flat all the way home. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you had to get there. There is, uh, there's no place I'd rather be right now after a long night than with two, uh, two dudes talking about Bitcoin. So... Let's get into it. Jason, tell us uh, a little bit about yourself and what you're up to in the space, because I know a lot of our audience may not be familiar with uh, your work. Sure. Thanks. Really appreciate it, Josh and Dan. Um, I'm a former FDIC regulator, and uh, I happened to work in capital markets and finance in 2008-2009 during the financial crisis. So I literally saw the birth of the financial crisis, including the IndyMac bank failure, where um, uh, I realized as I was watching as this junior analyst, like kind of at the you know ground zero, 
that um, this was all based on trust, that money, our financial system is based on trust. And if we didn't convince people to keep their money in banks, then we'd lose that trust because it wasn't just that there wasn't enough money to go around. But part of the U.S. government is a little bit of what has to be a PR campaign about what the value of money is. Mm. And so I was thinking about this myself. And then I got into the trade associations in D.C., started at the Chamber of Digital Commerce, and then have been working in government and regulatory affairs ever since um, because the cryptocurrency industry, when it came out and when Bitcoin first came out, I, I found this community of people that were all talking about the same thing that I was uh, thinking back in 08 and 09. Wow, the Fed Reserve balance sheet's really getting big. And, <laughs> and so to realize that people had picked up on it, it's so exciting to see people like yourself in their 20s and 30s who get it the way I sort of had my moment when I woke up in 08 and 09. And to talk about solution, to me, one of the solutions to a lot of the problems we have is, is soft money, is the problems of needing that trust. So the fact that we could go to a kind of money like Bitcoin, where we have a trust that's built in via the computer systems, um, you know, we start, we need regulators to start realizing, and a few of them are, that um, the Bitcoin is actually a solution to, to one of our problems that we face during the financial crisis. When did you first encounter Bitcoin? So I first encountered Bitcoin in 2016, um, and uh, I bought uh, a little bit of Bitcoin. I really didn't know what it was. And um, I was just so impressed by the idea that I could hold the value purely on my phone, you know, that it wouldn't mm-hmm. go anywhere else. And it took me, and it's been five years since, and I'm still trying to fully understand it. But I do Bitcoin mining in my basement now, and I own a lot of Bitcoin, and I make sure I leave it in cold storage. And, and I love it. I love learning about it every day. I think the financial crisis that you spoke about in 2008 and nine was a moment when a huge number of people realized that there's something going on and, and started to dig deeper. I know for myself, I worked at a financial company at the time. And it was absolute chaos. I mean, it was, it was people were getting shit canned. They were, everyone thought they were losing their jobs. You know, they got a tarp bailout. And then at that moment, I started thinking like, I don't understand how this all works. I want to understand it. And then I went down that rabbit hole and started getting into like hard money. Gold was my thing back then. And then when Bitcoin came around, it just made sense to me very quickly. And that was my story as well. I think so. I think there's a large amount of people out there that fell down this rabbit hole after that time. Absolutely. One thing I find interesting, so your role being that close to the banking system, understanding the inner workings of what's going on behind the scenes, in one sense to me, it seems like that's a, a perfect primer to understand Bitcoin. Like you're, you're right next to the people that are putting sticks and bubble gum on the system and you, you see the fragility that's inherent with that. But in some sense, it doesn't seem like that's the case. It, are people obstinate and slow to understand this just because when you're that insulated and close to the spigot, um, you, you just feel like that water can never be shut off? Or w- w- how, how receptive are people that come from your background to the ideas of Bitcoin? Well, that's such a good question. Um, so my former chairwoman, Sheila Bear, in 2008, 2009, who did a huge amount during the financial crisis, uh, is on the board of Paxos and has been in Congress two, three, four years ago. As always, she's ahead of the curve talking about how Congress and regulators needed to give you know Bitcoin a chance, needed to understand what this was. And so that's like one side of it, right? Like, I don't know if necessarily her 
her role in the crisis was something where she realized the same thing that sort of I did, but she certainly came to the conclusion that there there needs to be a chance given to to what this new technology holds. And then you have uh, Neil Kashkari, and it's funny as you were asking me the question, I was thinking, well, that's, I think I might realize now what the problem might be is. So you have the Fed President Neil Kashkari, uh, who was the guy who invented TARP, right in Treasury, much <laughs> higher rank than I was. You know, yeah. created the thing that supposedly was supposed to fix everything, and maybe. Maybe you kind of get a little bit of a um, you know syndrome or, or too cocky or egotistical because he feels like he saved America you know by creating these TARP loans and right. it's sort of like the doctor you try to say maybe you should try your surgery a different way and he's like no and so you hear Kashkari talk about this stuff and it's it might as well be vaporware so I, I give you two really strong examples right a guy like Neil Kashkari who's now president of the Fed who keeps denouncing this stuff for whatever reason. Uh, and then you have, and maybe that's just people stuck in the legacy world. And then you have, you know, the Sheila Bears and the visionaries who were quote unquote part of the problem or trying to fix the problem and look, look coming out of it, realize, wait a minute, you know, Bitcoin has promised we should think about this as a country. To, to finish out your background a little bit, give us an intro to what you're up to at the Value Technology Foundation, what caused you to go that direction and, and what you folks are looking to accomplish there. Thanks a lot. We're um, a 501c3 uh, organization that supports uh, government agencies in uh, Bitcoin, blockchain, and, and anything else that the government wants to learn about the space. We're uh, considered a neutral broker of information. That's been my goal as sort of a think tank where we, you know, no one can say we're necessarily prejudiced toward one way or another. We have received money from, from folks in the industry to get us started. But our primary source of revenue is by the uh, education courses that we get paid for by different departments and government. And we believe this is really important because if people don't learn what this is and understand what it is, and give themselves a chance to be educated, that's when they can easily say, we just need to ban it. We just need to get rid of it. So I see that as part of the mission and, and one of the results of the work that we do. Uh, Jason, was this, was this your idea? You're the one that thought of this? <laughs> Yeah, um, I had a moment um, like it was, I, I had introduced Nick Zabo uh, at this chamber event, uh, you know, founder of Smart Contracts, coined that term. And I was really thinking after meeting him and introducing him that like there really needs to be a term as a way of helping to try to explain to congressmen and regulators what this space is all about. And so like you sort of have this buzzword, the Internet, and then you have information technology. Anytime I talk to either of you about information technology, like, you know, my grandmother just uh, sent in money to Nigeria, you know, you'll know immediately what I'm talking about. Like, oh, yeah, go talk to the subcommittee on you know, information technology. So I said, maybe we need a word that's similar to information technology that kind of captures the space. So, you know, a lot of people hear Internet of Value. I said, and I wrote this three page white paper, why don't we just call it? value technology and say it's it's really just a new technology and, and it impacts value money things like that and that's a good way and has been an easy way for people in congress to understand what what we're talking about instead of getting them totally confused do you get the feeling having being that cl as close as you are to the to congress and some of the regulators that there's a real thought that they can just wave a wand and and actually just ban this and make it go away or do they understand it um, or is there a deeper understanding where they, they understand some of the decentralized nature of this and that just banning it carte blanche won't have any real effect in the long term? Can you speak to that at all? Yeah. So um, 
it's hard when people don't really understand it and they can't touch it. And um, I'll tell both of you this on your show and just because I'm so grateful to be on your show and it's a funny tidbit I haven't talked about publicly and I won't identify where it came from, but I was literally doing a briefing in, in like the center of Congress um, with one uh, member who um, started asking me who the president of Bitcoin was. And, and they were dead serious. They, so I, mean, you're laughing, right? I yeah. almost started laughing, but then I was like, wait, they really want an answer to this. And they think like, if I'm not going to tell them who it is, that I'm somehow like hiding or protecting, you right. know, the Bitcoin corporation. <laughs> and I'm like, I promise you in no way am I like trying to impede your understanding of this. I'm telling you though, you're going to have to get over it. There just is no CEO of, of what Bitcoin is. And um, and I, so, so I don't mean to say that to, either, to make fun of it either, right? Because you have to remember, most people in Congress are in their 60s or 70s. They don't book their own flights. You know, they have someone control their iPhone. So they're lucky if they understand how like Priceline.com works, right? But yeah. they have a lot of smart people around them to help coach them. And there are some who are interested in it. And when they talk to real people and realize there's real businesses in the space, then they, then they perk up and they listen because that's something that they can compute. Yeah, yeah it's, it, we almost take the word decentralized for granted. You know, so for folks like the three of us that have been in this space and have been enamored with it and studied it extensively, this word, we just throw this word around right now, like it's fully understood. But if you're, if you're living in the, the beginning here of the information digital age, this idea of decentralized technology is entirely foreign to you. And I think, sort of speaking to myself here right now, but a grace needs to be given to people that don't understand this because we were all in that, that boat at one point where all of these concepts that we now take for granted were entirely foreign at, at one day in time. And I guess that's part of the reason why you got this idea and why there's probably such a, such a hole that needs to be filled because bringing yeah. people up to speed cannot be done in one conversation. You need a lot of resources, a lot of intentionality to make it happen. I think that's, that's also why there's still such opportunity in the space, because there's a vast majority of people in Congress in general and the general populace that don't understand what this is, don't understand how it works, and are very skeptical because it's such a new technology in the scheme of things. And that misunderstanding and the, is the misallocation of capital that we are all hoping to take advantage of. Yeah. Yeah. Imagine if I were to say to both of you, um, you know, there's this new kind of fire that breaks out. But I can't tell you where the source of the fire is. Like, you know, immediately you'd be like, well, wait a minute, how do we put out the fire? And that's the real challenge that you have in Washington, D.C. with the regulators. It's not so much that they're necessarily afraid of like Bitcoin or people, you know, any more than they'd be afraid of like World of Warcraft tokens. What, what brings, brings fear to them is that it, you're telling them about something that they realize they don't have a system in place to regulate. They, they don't know how to do it. And it has to be something that they learn. And that's what gets scary, too, when you hear about discussions about DAOs and Wyoming and all these types of things. The question mark everyone always has in government that I don't know we've really given a good answer to yet is, well, how, what, how does the governance work? You know, how is it? How do you regulate something that seems like you can't go to the person in charge and tell them to stop doing it? Yeah. One of the reasons we're you came to mind as a guest and we're most excited to talk to you is just to get a sort of a high level of understanding of political and regulatory headwinds. And Josh and I were talking some before you came on and, and we were saying, you know, at a base level, the move that we're likely undergoing right now towards nation state adoption or potential nation state adoption is going to bring with it regulatory regime 
and that's going to be center stage. And I know for a lot of hardcore Bitcoin plebs, this idea of even gauging with uh, Bitcoin regulation seems like ridiculous and unnecessary. Like this thing's anti-fragile enough to survive anything. And that certainly may be true on a 10, 20, 30 year time horizon. But for average dudes like us who are firemen, who have families and are tied to locality, what's going on in the country we reside is important and is going to impact our future with Bitcoin. And I know that may not be a cool, sexy, libertarian thing to say in the Bitcoin community, but it's just a reality for a lot of average Joe workers where this this concept of jurisdictional arbitrage is cool to put out on Twitter and it's a fun word to throw out, but it's just not a tangible reality for a lot of average Bitcoiners. Now cue in why it matters to engage with, participate in, and learn about what's actually going on in this country. So this is a super broad question, but just kind of catch us up on where we're at with crypto, Bitcoin, decentralized ledger uh, headwinds in terms of regulation and uh, what people are thinking in D.C. Sure. Um, We have a, a new SEC chairman, Gary Gensler, who has been very active prior in the space. He taught a course at MIT um, about Bitcoin and blockchain, definitely understood it. I think people perceived maybe that meant he'd be just totally friendly to everyone in the industry. Um, But um, what it turns out to be is he's trying to impose a regulatory regime on crypto and Bitcoin. um, And it could be in a way that would make it harder in the U.S. to transact for Bitcoin on exchanges. And What I always explain is you've heard him, and I wrote an article in Bitcoin Magazine about this, where I I teasingly called him Dirty Gary, like Dirty Harry, you know, (laughs) how many bullets do I have left in my gun? You know, he's sort of saying to the exchanges right now, he's like, come on, you got 25, 50 tokens on your platform. You're telling me not one of them is a security. And what, what he's trying to do and what that means is he's trying to say, if any exchange, even a Coinbase, has just one token on its platform that it allows trading for that happens to be a security, Gary Gensler is saying, you now need to come under the auspices of this Securities and Exchange Commission, which then means that you're going to have Bitcoin regulated. And people don't realize that Bitcoin's already regulated in a few ways. It's already considered property. So there's the tax, the way Bitcoin is taxed is understood. Uh, FinCEN has already made it clear what the responsibilities are regarding Bitcoin, although that may be changing soon because of a, a couple events that I'd love to talk about if we have time. But the biggest problem is that um, uh, there, there, there is this idea, and Bitcoin's been considered a commodity by the CFTC. The problem is that you now have someone who's saying, even if you're trading a token, let's say some you know, shitcoin, and it becomes a security, and your Bitcoin is on that exchange that's now under the SEC, it doesn't mean that they're going to treat Bitcoin like a security. What it does mean is you might get consumer disclosures. You might have to sign something before you sell your Bitcoin because it's now a part of an exchange, even though it's considered a commodity. It, it's not clear, but it's sort of like putting oversight over something that we doesn't need to go there. Um, and it actually should make you bullish in general if you're thinking about where you hold your Bitcoin or buy it. Yeah. Um, I always recommend cold storage, but buying on Bitcoin only exchanges because those types of exchanges won't have the threat of suddenly being on the SEC. So that's, I'd say, is the biggest impact to our space right now has been a very active uh, securities and exchange chairman 
um, that has acknowledged Bitcoin, has says Bitcoin is a good thing, but says there needs to be more regulation and is lobbying Congress himself to, uh, to try to get more of a crypto regulatory regime, as he calls it. When I'm, when I'm listening to you talk about that, what, what's coming to mind for me immediately is Eric Voorhees. Have you seen um, what he's talking about doing with Shapeshift, which is turning the entire exchange into a decentralized autonomous organization? So what, what I'm, the immediate thought that I have when you start talking about that kind of regulation on decentralized exchanges like Coinbase is do they realize that if they get too onerous on that type of regulation, that these things will probably just turn into the decentralized organizations that will mitigate that problem for them entirely. Uh, is that in the back of their mind, you think, some of these regulators at all? Or do they think that this is just going to, everyone's going to be trapped in that box? I think that uh, decentralized exchanges are sort of taking on a whole other uh, shape of its own. And um, yeah, I'm definitely familiar with what Voorhees is working on at Shapeshift. I think that's very interesting. I think it goes to the idea of how would, how would it be regulated, right? Figuring out how uh, would you work as a decentralized exchange by default. Again, seems like if you can't necessarily control those transactions. So I would think um, for DeFi, there is a higher level of concern about money laundering and concern about the aspect of that happening. But um, I think that ultimately the regulators don't, they do differentiate like Bitcoin from some of the other assets. They do recognize Bitcoin's established longer. So that is one benefit. But um, all of the rest of it's really all in one box. I want to go back to you hinting on Bitcoin-only exchanges. And you said that uh, when you were referencing Gensler and the SEC. Dig a little deeper on that for us, for our audience, because I think that's a tangible takeaway for a lot of people. Um, and I think some of what you're hinting at is him just placing Bitcoin in a unique category uh, from the rest of the space. Walk us through that and then tie it back into why you recommend people only buy from Bitcoin-only exchanges. Sure. So um, uh, Bitcoin has been determined to be a commodity. And I think you can be assured that if you have a Bitcoin-only exchange, that exchange is not necessarily going to come within the realm of the Securities and Exchange Commission because yeah. they're not trading securities. It's not. It's never going to end up under their purview. Is is basically what you're saying? Is exactly. Your, yeah, yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So you don't. So it, it's a less risk to you, in my opinion, as a consumer. I mean, the the least risk is to, in my opinion, you move it to cold storage because, as we all know on this call, anything can happen to an exchange. Go all the way back to Mt. Gox, you can suddenly lose all your funds. So not your keys, not your coins. But what I'm seeing. In Gary Gensler's approach is an attempt to um, get or uh, uh, control the exchanges like Coinbase, because those tokens that are securities and trading as such, he's saying need the protections of the securities laws, which isn't necessarily wrong. Um, so uh, he is putting a lot of pressure. And I'd say for the altcoins, it's a really tough environment. Even the last yeah. hearing in Congress focused a lot on altcoins and DeFi. Bitcoin barely came up. So. This could be putting you on the spot more than you're comfortable with. Feel free to uh, veto this question. But in your mind, what is a security and what is it? I know I've heard, I think it was maybe you were on with Preston in that episode. And something was said, like, if it looks like a duck and it quacks like a duck, it's probably a duck. It seems like just from the little bit I've looked into Gensler's view, 
he sees Bitcoin and all the rest. And I think in his mind, everything other than Bitcoin is fair game for being considered as a security. This is me sort of filling in the long-term gaps. Do you see it that way? Or what's kind of your opinion on what is and isn't a security and what might fall under the SEC versus the CFTC? Well, it's, it's funny. I will answer your question. And there's a number of variables to it that people forget about. Uh, the commissioner of the CFTC, Dawn Stump, just recently came out and did a nice paper explaining what it means if Bitcoin is a commodity. And, he, and what she reminds everybody is it doesn't mean the CFTC regulates it. Like pork bellies, orange juice aren't regulated. And at the end of the day, that's really what you can see when it comes to Bitcoin is it's clearly taken on the form of a commodity that's not physical, and it's a matter of trying to fit it into the law. Now, if you look at the Don Byer bill, Congressman Byer's bill, he takes a departure from the Howey test. He actually looks at figuring out whether a digital asset security is a security or not by a much different method. It has to do with if there's equity interest or debt interest, um, it, you know, really how the token functions less than like is there common control and other things? And so that's, that's a real interesting, this, this bill in Congress that's a departure from whether it is a security or not. It is, is, is a token a security? It, it depends on the Howey test, right? And so the Howey test focuses on uh, a number of concerns, just like orange groves. And I think one of the best solutions to help explain that is uh, the Securities Clarity Act by Congressman Emmer. Um, he's talked about the importance of peer-to-peer -peer trading and, and, and was really worried about the crypto tax uh, position. But Congressman Emmer basically said, you will, um, you know, the, the Securities Clarity Act will just make it clear if it's a commodity or if it's a security, uh, but that if you have a token that's within an investment contract, it would ultimately mean that it was a commodity. So there's lots of congressmen and congresswomen working to fix the issue, but to answer your general question of is most everything that's not Bitcoin or is all of it a security? Um, it's like what the SEC says. It's a facts and circumstance case and you have to run the Howey test through it. But let me tell you, the majority of them probably would be considered securities. What, what, what you find in D.C. is, um, and this is why people get annoyed with politicians, is it's a moving goalpost because a lot of the folks are talking about do we change what definition of a security even is? Under the current definition, with common control, with the efforts of others, it vast majority of made the major blockchains fall into that. Hmm. Yeah, it's a big deal. Jason, I know you've probably paid attention to what's been going on with uh, the Fed lately. There's been a couple of presidents that have been accused of maybe some unethical behavior by trading in and out of some equities during the, the uh, corona crisis that the Fed was buying simultaneously, um, selling at, I mean, they weren't selling during blackout periods or buying during blackout periods, but I think it would be reasonable to consider like most of the entire year of 2020 as maybe a blackout period with how much change was going on with how the Fed was purchasing these securities and, and who knew about it when. And uh, what's your take on and I know they haven't technically broken any of their ethics mandates, but maybe those mandates need to change a bit because it seems pretty outright. I mean, it, it really kind of comes back to like people look at these financial institutions and they say, you know, I couldn't do that and get away with it. Why, why can they do it and get away with it? And that kind of breaks down the trust in institutions that I think that we're seeing on a broad scale these days. And it definitely doesn't give people the... Uh, the trust that they should have in people running these Federal Reserve banks. Do uh, you have any comments or thoughts on that? Um, I, I couldn't help but think when you said, you know, the Corona 
crisis. You know, it is a crisis for Fed presidents and politicians when they don't have beer on a Saturday night. I mean, that's a real challenge <laughs> and, and, and that's always a problem. Um, so I totally know what you mean about it being a crisis. You know, for, for people who are very wealthy, uh, I mean, we saw this with Trump. We saw this with others. When I say very wealthy, what does that mean? Are we talking like over a million dollars, over $500,000? But then, you know, you start to have all these vehicles or, or you know, I, I suppose it would be somebody who thinks you just need to own a lot of other coins besides Bitcoin and you just have no idea where all your coins are or what they're doing at any one time. But you do have a responsibility. And I think even the appearance of doing something wrong needs to be paid attention to because hardworking taxpayers like myself and yourselves, we deserve better than someone who is taking advantage of the same system that's supposed to bail us out of financial crises and produce money that we can all count on uh, than to be, you know, messing around with mistakes like this. Look, if it's within the threshold, then, you know, maybe the Fed president, that's okay. But if you're, if you're skirting something, or even if it's coming up to the threshold, the question is, should you be doing that? And the problem for the Federal Reserve is they don't really have anyone directly overseeing them. They just have Congress that could change, you know, the rules about them from a legal perspective. But for the Federal Reserve, you know, without having that oversight, sometimes you you know, I think even the Federal Reserve needs to be reminded that you have the public trust. And it's the same thing with the FDIC, too, that the FDIC, uh, you know, these agencies, you have to earn and keep the public's trust. So if you're going to do something that might look like you're taking advantage of the bank that you're working in or taking advantage of the Fed's policies, just don't do it. You know, just start by just not doing it. Right. Or finding out whoever your wealth advisors are and tell them to go, you know, hold Bitcoin or buy IBM and just don't do anything with my money. So, um, you know, that I think should be more the, uh, the rule and not the exception. I know for a fact when I was at the FDIC, I was told and I never have owned a bank stock. I absolutely will not ever own a bank stock because of, you know, just the appearance of that I would be trying to favor one bank over another. Yeah. Jason, catch us up on this infrastructure bill. Most people that are well involved in the Bitcoin space, at least on Twitter, would have seen all this chatter. What happened with that bill? Walk us through the timeline and then where it kind of puts us with uh, Bitcoin at this day and time. Sure thing. And sorry, guys, my wife just walked in. So uh, she's uh, uh, forgetting that I'm in the middle of a podcast, but you know, she knows, she knows the priorities and who's in charge. So, um, <laughs> Does she understand how big this show is, Jason? I, she doesn't. She doesn't. Okay. We, need to, we need to have a conversation with yeah. her after. Tell her we have tens upon tens of downloads a week and that this is potentially your big break. So That's right. That's right. It's all our big breaks. So the crypto infrastructure bill, bill um, went from the Senate to the House and people remember there was a movement by Senator Pat Toomey, along with Senator Cynthia Lummis from Wyoming. Wyoming's been a very friendly state with Caitlin Long as far as um, uh, their interest in the fact that this language came out about crypto reporting of taxes by a broker. And the problem was the language that came out in the bill was not very good. Um, the way the infrastructure bill is supposed to work is we're supposed to get our roads, bridges, tunnels fixed. So guys like you can like get to when there's a fire or whatever. <laughs> I mean, uh, you know, I'd say that's somewhat important, um, but to not cost the taxpayer anything as a result. So there are these things that are called pay-fors, meaning you have to balance the budget, which we all know in DC that rarely happens, but in this one bill, it does. So they had to find things that would pay for these roads, bridges, and tunnels. One of the things that they came across that they wanted to make a priority was taxing Bitcoiners 
uh, on their transactions um, and, and making sure that if you buy or sell Bitcoin at an exchange, that it's automatically reported to the federal government. The language was sloppy, though, and what you saw with Toomey and Lummis was to try to change the language with an amendment because the way the language was written was broad enough to potentially capture whether or not it was the intent. People like Bitcoin miners. So, you know, a Bitcoin miner earns the next uh, Coinbase reward of 6.25 Bitcoin. Who are they supposed to send the 1099 to, right? Uh, same with software providers, hardware providers. So in the, the bill has now moved to the House, and it's actually uh, an agreement that Nancy Pelosi struck over in the House was they were going to vote on it by September 27th. So I think we're going to see a vote on September 27th, where the bill will be debated. Unfortunately, part of the debate in the House over the rules about covering the bill is to agree there would be no amendment. So even though there was a, a fight in the Senate to try to change the language to keep Bitcoin miners and uh, you know, software uh, developers on Lightning you know, protected, they're still vulnerable under this, this law now. It probably will pass on the House, probably September 27th, and then it'll go to Biden's office and become law. And there's been stuff the Treasury saying, well, we really only want to go after the exchanges, meaning we want the exchanges to report on people's taxes. But um, because of the way it's written, you could argue that Bitcoin miners and validators in the U.S. might be responsible for that. And that's a real problem, right? Because you're talking about wanting to be here in the U.S. and wanting U.S. to be a friendly ecosystem. We just had China kick out all the miners and they're all right. going to like the U.S. So why suddenly make a rule that would cause them to give pause and want to move to a different country? What's the what is the word? The word is effectuating transactions. Is that the wording that's currently in the bill? Yes. And, and a lot of yeah. people are confused on what that even means. But I guess so. So the worry you just painted is that currently there the the spirit of the law, if you will, is to just zone in on exchanges. But if in a future world, somebody goes back to the letter of the law, this could land on miners and node operators who I think it's worth noting, aren't going to be able to do this. Like this is, this is where education comes into play, right? Because mm -hmm. people that are voting on this and regulating this don't even understand that in this decentralized protocol to ask a, a lightning node operator, which Josh and I are <laughs> like, who's sending transactions through your node? Like, I have no idea. Quote unquote, effectuating transactions that there is no possible way for me to keep track of what they're requesting, which is in a sense going to completely either obsolete or darken the entire market. Like, is this something anyone's aware of or who's aware of this? How, is this being spoken of at all? Or is this just such a tiny part of this infrastructure bill? that to try to get the word out on one small issue is just nearly impossible. It's, it's, already, it's already too tiny. I mean, because we're talking about one aspect of a, a huge right. bill that is considered uh, in Biden's mind to be one of the main things of his first four years, right? So if this is part of his accomplishments for the first four years in office when he tries to get reelected, this bill's going to pass. And so it's been even if if the language was wrong and the, even the person who wrote it, Portman, said, I think this is uh, uh, probably needs to be better language than it is because they just didn't understand the technology. The problem has been finding agreement amongst a bill that's so fast moving to allow the amendment to go in, you know, to change it. Now, there is there are other efforts. There are, are people working afoot. And it's definitely drawn a lot of attention to lobbyists. Uh, 
the Brownstein Group, which is like the largest lobbying firm uh, in the U.S. and it's very prestigious. Brownstein was hired by Coinbase and Fidelity for one of their new nonprofit trades. So you have a lot of the uh, majorly lobbyists coming to the table now, which is actually a good thing for us because they've been saying, and, and they opened my eyes to a few other ways that this could actually be remedied by legislation. And they're working on a few ways now. So even if this does pass, right, and we have this bill as of October, we still need Treasury to give the guidelines on how to interpret the law. So hopefully right. the guidelines will be, it's just the exchanges. But there are people who are in the works of still trying to find another legal fix. So we don't have this hanging out over our heads. Now we have this buyer bill kind of in the background, and I've heard whispers that this is very likely to be the roadmap for where they're going with crypto and Bitcoin. Uh, explain the buyer bill, and then do, do you see it that way? Do you think it's the likely future trajectory of where we're going with regulation and, and, uh, and legislation? Well, this is why I always love these conversations because it's an opportunity for me to learn as well and, and ask both of you something along the way. So like with the buyer bill, it's interesting. It talk, it makes Bitcoin a commodity by law. Um, but the way it's written is it says Bitcoin and all of its forks and Ethereum and all of its forks. So is that okay with the Bitcoin community that within the buyer bill, we would have codified into law that Bitcoin is what equal to Ethereum and Ethereum classic. So, you know, that's the problem we have as this ecosystem continues to grow is the competitiveness of other projects of other ideas that can sometimes impact what might be just basic blocking and tackling needed. Because the truth is it shouldn't necessarily be, I mean, it might as well be all of its forks for those that maybe got some other types of Bitcoin along the way. But the point is to make Bitcoin a commodity. So that's, I really uh, applaud the buyer team for this bill from that perspective. Um, but I think that it's obvious that someone has also convinced the buyer team that it's not just Bitcoin, but that it's also Ethereum, which you can't blame them, right? Because the SEC has sort of also indicated that could be a commodity. So that's one of the things we have to think about is, is that what we want? Because you're right, it is a little bit of a whisper of what you would call a balloon bill, kind of floating a balloon in, seeing how people react to it. And that's the one big thing to think about from a Bitcoin perspective is, I mean, do we want to have a Bitcoin and Ethereum and all its forks be commodities? Are we okay with that? If something like that passed, is that, does that mean that those two blockchains, Bitcoin and Ethereum, are just forever bespoke as the only commodities in the space? Or is there a possibility that other things could be added? Other things could be added because it says Bitcoin, Ethereum, and I think it then says in others, you know, okay. of similar nature. But, but, but you then have a law, right? I have a law that says Bitcoin is a commodity. And that's huge because that means no one can ever say it's a security, right? Yeah. Right. The reason that I ask is because... Um, I mean, I'm a huge advocate for, I, I, I do prefer Bitcoin. I think most of the other stuff in the space is a lot of, a lot of it is nonsense. There's other projects going on that make sense. But the point I'm trying to make is I'm not trying, I don't think anyone should be playing favorites with any of these things. Like I think that mm. this should all be working itself out in a, a free market. And if people decide Bitcoin is what they want, then it'll win. If Ethereum is the thing that people decide they want, then like, I don't have any predilection in deciding who's the winner here. And I don't think it's fair to, for anyone to do that. I think it should work itself out naturally. Hmm. I think we have the same disposition, which is Josh and I do, which is we are, we are maxis for sure. Um, we hold only Bitcoin. We shitcoined in a previous day and time. And through education and growing conviction, we've, we've reached this 
thesis, basically, that Bitcoin is the one real discovery here, um, or the biggest discovery here. And, and I think we soften our tone by saying it's the one safe and wise place to park your money. Um, but we, at the same time, as Josh just alluded to, are kind of like, everybody chill, like, let this, let this play out. If we understand the fundamentals correctly, one thing is going to be left standing or standing a lot taller than the others. Where I right. do, hearing you kind of explain the buyer bill, I think one concern that comes to mind is like, do we want to bring two dates to this party? Um, because there's one smoking hot date that we would like to pay all our attention to, but we also have to babysit the person over in the corner that's loud and drunk and obnoxious. And I think that's a little bit of what you're hinting at with Ethereum. And as a Bitcoin maxi, to be candid, I just don't see the same fundamentals with Ethereum. And I don't necessarily want their issues to be married to Bitcoins in the short midterm uh, regulatory environment moving forward. Is that kind of what you were asking and sort of the way you see it too, or your concerns surrounding those two things being lumped together? Yeah, I mean... You, you actually, the, the, the point of that is that when we think about things like DeFi that's handled on the Ethereum blockchain and the high gas fees, the latest hearing that was a hearing with Gary Gensler and you had Senator Elizabeth Warren and others, you know, questioning him, the question that came up and the concern was, you know, what about all these high fees on Ethereum? And I felt like saying like, hallelujah, finally, they're paying attention to one of the key problems of the Ethereum blockchain of these massive fees that you have to pay that just don't work for people with ordinary amounts of wealth. You know, I mean, it's like if you're super wealthy, then maybe you can deal with the Ethereum blockchain, but otherwise it's a problem. So thank you, Senator Elizabeth Warren, for saying that. And at the same time, this is where we all have to go back to our community and uh, it has to be a little bit of tribal warfare because, you know, Ethereum is also kind of screwing us or diluting the Bitcoin brand, right? Because it's all lumped together. Yeah. So like you said, it's that's a perfect example is, you know, having to be maybe that babysitter where Bitcoin's kind of, you know, used as sort of a shield um, to get through some of their own issues uh, like NFTs and DeFi. Um, but, you know, the problem is going to be uh, the problem that we have, I would say, if people don't care about the space or don't even think we should engage with government, it's kind of like not voting at this point, because then you're just going to have all the laws will be built for the DeFi, Ethereum ecosystem and everything else, because they're going to hire lobbyists and they're going to influence the laws the way they want them. People might say, well, Bitcoin will still exist, but I think the problem that both of you would have, and I would, I would push back a little bit on the idea of you know, not getting involved uh, for those who might be listening and to say you probably should at least get somewhat involved because then you're just default allowing them to do whatever they want. And it might make you have to reconsider where your family lives if you really care yeah. about Bitcoin. Right. I think that's a good way to put it. It's not that it's it's not that Ethereum presents an existential threat to the success of Bitcoin, but it's that Ethereum in the short midterm could present a threat, a threat to uh, it could cause regulatory harm for Bitcoiners that's unnecessary if the two of them are attached to one another. Yep, yep. It's just like with the SEC exchange concept, right? If you have your Bitcoin on Coinbase, you're not doing anything wrong. Maybe you're just holding Bitcoin, but then tomorrow it's under the SEC's purview and they start asking more questions or you have to have disclosures that you can buy or sell Bitcoin and that kind of thing. That that's Bitcoin did nothing to deserve that. We're just part of the crowd at that point. And I think it's really important and can't be said enough to our politicians and regulators and even at the local and state level 
is reminding them of how Bitcoin is different. You know, Bitcoin is it's it's its own asset class. We have people, you've had people on your show, they talk very wisely about the way it can be in a hedge against inflation. It's the only true vehicle I'm aware of where you can store value and you won't see it, uh, you know, leak. Mm-hmm. What are your, what are you hearing? What's the, uh, the street talk about, um, stable coins, uh, around those parts in DC? What, I, I, I've heard a little bit that they're maybe taking a real close look at those and I could see some regulation coming out concerning that, especially because it's such, you know, obviously close to the heart of regulators to be, you know, linking anything to the dollar. What, uh, how much concern should people have? Like, I know uh, myself, I have some stable coins making interest on BlockFi. How much concern should you have sitting on some stable coins? Wait, before you answer, I wanted to say it's hilarious because Josh and I were comparing notes the other week and we both have pulled all our Bitcoin off custodial uh, lenders like BlockFi. No knock on them. Power to them for their business model. Not worth the risk. But then Josh was like, but Dan, how do you feel about putting a good chunk of fiat on there? I'm like, oh, fuck yeah. yeah. Let it ride. I have, it's funny. <laughs> it I have no through. problem letting stable coins sit on BlockFi, but Bitcoin, no way. I won't let them hold I'll that. earn 8% interest on stable coins, but <laughs> putting my Bitcoin at any semblance of a risk, heck no. Yeah. Yeah. I was really, I was getting ready to put Josh on the spot to be like, what he's saying? Is it tether or circle? Which, which one's going to move first, right? Uh, I wouldn't own so- tether personally, but I do have USDC. <laughs> yeah, no. So. Look, the funny thing about regulators is when they really don't like something, they don't like to call it what people have called it. So like if you remember last year in Europe, they were talking about stable coins and they said they called it so-called stable coins. That's the joke. Everyone's it's so-called stable coins. Yeah. And and that was funny up until about two weeks ago when Gary Gensler came and did his testimony and shows you how quick he will be to try to just regulate this whole space. And, and I think you do have to call in the question if you have a BlockFi interest-bearing stablecoin. That's that's what we're seeing now is that what if it's considered a security? And what Gary Gensler said, and this this I knew was coming. I just didn't know what the angle was. Because about a month ago, guys, I was talking I was at a meeting with the SEC, and I brought up stablecoins, kind of like you. It was just some simple thing. And, and, and the response I got back was, Jason, we don't recognize the term stablecoins. And I'm like, what are you guys talking about? You wrote what's, a thing what's the term they're using? Do they have a 11, term? Well, we now know. Uh, the term was in Gary Gensler's testimony, he calls them stable value coins. And why is he calling them stable value coins? Because a stable value fund is re- regulated mm. by the SEC. Yeah. So yeah. You know, it was I mean, well done, Gary. You know, you, you figured out how stable coins need to be part of it. And probably they should, because if you're putting a whole bunch of securities and bonds and we don't really have regulation around it that technically probably is a security, but, um, you know, but it's a, a stable coin, you know, it's what it is. It's what p- it, for people in the space are, right. You don't care about y- your Bitcoins out of harm's way. So you have some fiat there, let it burn, like you said, <laughs> but, but if it's, if it's going to be USDC or tether or anything, the questions that the SEC is asking is number one, is it a security? And at a higher level saying, are they paying attention to it? There's a president's working group, and it's called the President's Working Group on Stablecoins. The government actually sees stablecoins more of a threat than they do Bitcoin. And the way I can promise you that is if their major working group is focused on stablecoins, what are they most fearful about with stablecoins that maybe they don't yet see from Bitcoin or don't really, right. they probably just don't believe Bitcoin could overtake the US dollar. 
But USDC, I mean, people ever, what if everyone just starts using USDC, you know, and uses yeah. that as their dollars? I mean, that puts the Fed out of business. So that's, that's why, and the treasury has a problem too, right? But does it, I guess I, I just want to ask and push back just a little, because if, yeah. if stable coins have to be linked to, like if there's a new regulation, stable coins must be linked to dollar per dollar in a bank account held by Circle. And now Circle is just the custodian of, say, I think it's $38 billion in USDC right now. They have to prove, be audited and say, yeah, we hold these dollars. I mean, is it really any different between those dollars circulating the economy and the USDC as long as they can actually prove and be audited? And I don't, I don't see how they have any real fear from that is what I'm saying. Sure. We, we might be here a while because I really believe <laughs> very, very strongly that that is a problem. And I'll, I'll, I'll let me try yeah, to- Yeah, please do. I'm, I'm genuinely curious. Is, so you're doubling the money supply right? You're essentially creating more money because you have the dollars in the bank account. And now you have this new yeah. form of money that's right. Your yeah. But that'd be the, the same if, as if they created a loan though, correct? Um, yeah. I mean, no, that's, that's very fair. If it was, if it was a loan, it'd be the same thing. But the, the, the problem is, and this is the way I see it, is that it is circle. What if circle goes out of business? That's the problem. That's the risk that we're running into. Or has a huge security breach. Because we have a single yeah. point of failure. Yeah. Now I get it. And I think Circle, I'm excited about Circle looking to become a bank because they realize it's going to have to be something that resides in the banking system, right? But um, it, doesn't, it doesn't go without harm because the problem is consumers won't fundamentally understand the difference between a stable coin that's USDC and a dollar in their wallet. I mean, yeah. that's the argument, right? And if um, we can go again, I'm, I'm kidding about the time, but then then we re then we have to open up the debate about the Fed and is, is a dollar really worth anything, right? Yeah. Like what's worth maybe the USDC is right. worth more. But what? Wait a minute. Now we're suddenly talking about a coin that relies on the same system that we're supposed to all hate. Because yeah, right. I see what you're saying. It's basically, it's you know, really, it's another deck of cards on top of the deck of cards holding up, right. you know, sticks and bubble gum the whole way. And I totally understand that idea. Um, yeah. And you guys as Bitcoiners, let me, and let me just say this, Josh is just, and I'm not trying to change your mind on it, but I'm saying, and it's kind of like, um, I'm not going to die on the hill for, uh, for stable yeah. coins. I can tell you that <laughs> right. this is just, so this saying, is like just Alex, like, <laughs> yeah, like Alex Gladstein, when he said like, do we really come all this way to fight either, whether it's going to be Ethereum or Solana? Like, no, like yeah, yeah. Yeah. Bitcoiners yeah. here, I, I don't really care that much to be honest, what ultimately happens in the stable coin market, as long as it doesn't affect the way people view Bitcoin. Right. So it's the yeah. same concept. Yeah. So whether it's a circle or a tether that to me puts a, a risk to the whole industry. Um, that, that, that does worry me a little bit, but you're right. Listen, it's a dollar. I'm not going to argue about how much value is in a dollar, right? I think we know with the way it is now, there's nothing that backs it anymore that has an intrinsic value like Bitcoin. But, you know, if it's a stable coin and you're looking for a decent stable coin and the company offers it, I think that's, to me, that's a positive thing. Cause then you're maybe it's easier for you to buy Bitcoin with your stable coins. Yeah. And that's, that is a nice feature. That is not a bug. So I will say that's where there's a use case for it. Um, but I do not think I do not think though that we should be. And you, you said it exactly right. That's really my point. Is let's not focus so much on how important it is as to whether what it's backed by you know the full faith and credit of of the U.S. Because that's a large reason we have a large economic problem in this country right yeah, now. Totally understood. It makes sense to me before switching gears here that they would be so obsessed with stable coins too, in the sense that I, I'm sure they <laughs> they recognize that the future trajectory is CBDCs. 
And so whether it's a stable coin they have total control over or their own protocol, this is something that could encumber their ability to go a direction they want with a central bank digital currency. So exactly, yeah. absolutely right. That one of the most unreported things this last week was the China uh, Chinese digital currency is now available up to ten percent of the Chinese population. Now that wow. not all ten percent have have opted in yet, but it's being set up so it can be used in their subways during the Olympics, which we're only five or six months away from. And that is a centralized, you know, surveillance style of of, of CBDC. That's what the U.S. government really worries about. They're not so much worried about Bitcoin or all these other coins. They're worried when you can talk about threatening, you know, their existence or their way of life economically, and you create something that's palatable, whether it's the USDC or it's something like a Chinese digital currency, that's really concerning. And China has been developing this digital currency now for many, many years. Um, and they just kicked Bitcoin miners out. A lot of people say, oh, they probably kicked the Bitcoin miners out because of climate change or whatever. No. Yeah, right. They kicked them out because just the way they don't let Chinese use the Internet there because it's a it's yeah. a it's a command and control authoritarian society. That's the exact opposite, I think, of where we all want to yeah. spend our days. And it's an know? easy way for the Chinese to move their money out of China, which I think is key. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That was the greatest note. If, if you didn't realize that Bitcoin was equal to freedom, it was when the, the Chinese kicked the miners out of the country. Yeah. yeah. That was, that should be the signal to everybody. Yeah, that's a huge, I mean, that's a big plus on the side of Bitcoin as far as I'm concerned that the Chinese just, the CCP, not the Chinese, absolutely hates it. Do you think that's a selling point for people on the Hill and for the White House? Like, hey, look at what the CCP just did with this thing. Land of the free, home of the brave, look where it's coming. Like, is that a line that you can feed and people chew on? Yeah, I think that's actually really good and really needed right now. Um, the, the, uh, um, there was an article in the Wall Street Journal yesterday um, that just came out that was talking about the way the Biden administration's worried about ransomware attacks. Yeah, let's get into this. Uh, this was yeah. actually one of our next questions. Yeah, yeah. So that's like... Um, when you know when when you know there there you have to be able to demonstrate the positive side of something, and I think that it's a feature, not a bug, that uh, a country you know or or any regime can control something because you know I think it's uh, absolute power you know corrupts absolutely everything, and so you want to make sure that there's limits to what you can do with the money supply, and you find that with Bitcoin. The problem and the, what I worry about is that the um, things like the colonial pipeline hack and other hacks where ransomware was used effectively and people paid in Bitcoin and whatever other coins through exchanges, uh, the administration sees that as a really serious threat, which of course should be seen as a serious threat. Anytime our infrastructure can be shut down by enemies, particularly Russians or, you know, uh, a company formerly called the evil corporation, you know, I mean, any company called the evil corporation, just think of Austin Powers, but that's <laughs> like, okay, so we, we have some people who don't, who are trying to mess with our ecosystem and our supply chain. And so you'll, you'll want to do anything possible to stop that. And that's absolutely right. Like same with like 9-11, but what we have to be careful of, we don't just wholesale give up our rights and our freedoms. And what they're talking about doing is sanctioning the exchanges where a company chooses to pay the ransom. And they're worried about the risk of, uh, as they describe it in the Wall Street Journal article, which isn't correct entirely about it being very easy, you know, to, to, to use in instances of money laundering. So the Biden administration supposedly is going to come out with, and we're still learning what exactly this looks like, some fresh guidance to businesses 
that will basically indicate to them that they cannot pay off uh, if they're being held ransom via digital currency and how they could be held in an OFAC sanctions violation kind of way. They have uh, to do as, it the old fashioned way with briefcases of cash. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, so if you're Brian Armstrong though, and you're, you're sitting over there at Coinbase, this makes you, you're like, wait, what, what am I supposed to do then? So, so somebody, I mean, I don't care how robust your security model is. You're a sitting duck, right? In this space, a massive juicy sitting duck. People are targeting you. If you get targeted, you can't, you just flat out legally can't meet the, so what's your solution then? If you get hit with, if you get penetrated by significant ransomware, sir, I just genuinely, what, what is he supposed to do now? If, if the best resolute, I'm confused. I, I'm, I'm confused too. I, I really, I wish I had an answer. This is breaking news and I don't know. I've been thinking about it. What do you do if you're a company and you want to get things back up and running, but you don't, your policy is like kind of like Reagan, like you're not going to negotiate with terrorists. Do you right. hope they just go away or realize because they won't well, get they, paid? Maybe you know, the thought I mean, is in the longer term, if, if, if it's known that you just simply can't get paid doing this, it'll dissuade people from doing it. But in the meantime, they're going to, it's going to, I think the, the asymmetry of this kind of attack is hilarious because for the, for the attacker, I mean, maybe you spend some weeks or months working on this attack and you're successful, but you don't get paid. Costs very little to that guy generally versus the amount of pain and suffering you could cause in the infrastructure of some portion of the United States by shutting the electricity down. Massive asymmetry there. So they could just continue to do that until the finally somebody has to break. And it costs them nothing to sit on that breach. Like once the breach is done, they can sit on their hands and do absolutely nothing. It's costing them nothing. While on the other side, it's costing massive, massive pain and, and financial anguish. So I don't know. And, and the truth is, do we, I mean, what do we expect the companies to do? Because a lot of times it's not reported. Well, of course it's not reported. Why as a company would you want to admit your, you know, uh, uh, your cybersecurity uh, was breached? But what, you know, does this mean then you're going to pay by wire? Like, is there a correct way of paying? Like, do we now pay them off in U.S. dollars? I think that like to, and that's the trouble, right, with the argument is the idea that it, that cryptocurrency is the core of the issue. It, there's tons of things that are always going to be invented from a technological perspective. And when you have ransomware as a service or basically crime as a service and there's organized crime syndicates, they'll use any technology to attempt to, you know, uh, thwart you or dissuade you or take your value. But I think we have to acknowledge that at least with Bitcoin, you don't need the exchange to track it. We have something called the blockchain. All the, all the yeah. transactions are technically out there. So we'll ultimately be able to find out, you know, who the, who the folks are. But I don't know. I don't know what a company would be supposed to do in that instance and the seriousness of what would be happening to our supply chain, where if that company can't get up and running, it's, you know, maybe it's just better cybersecurity. Maybe it's a wake up call, right? That we can have people come in and just shut down a company via the internet. Maybe that's part of the problem. I'm not sure. Yeah. It, um, to me, this hearing about this, this article and this ransomware possibility, it just represents another exchange risk. I think for our audience, it's just another reason why you need to pull your Bitcoin off of exchanges and put it in cold storage because this, genu this truly could be a massive threat to where a lot of this money's funneling if indeed this goes through and they're just forced to essentially shut down because they can't meet these demands. I think it, it also makes me think of just like from a regulatory legislative standpoint, this is just an oversimplification of the digital realm. 
there's a criminal at your door with a gun. Just don't answer. Easier said than done. Like that's not how it works, but it's a, it's a quick band-aid solution or uh, without really thinking this through and unpacking, just don't pay them. But if you're running a business and an exchange, that's not necessarily how it's going to play out. Yeah. As we wrap up here, Jason, I'm going to, let's address a piece of FUD that I think a lot of people are curious about. And I'm sure, you know, when you're at the local tap, some people are asking you this question. A lot of folks out there, just plain and simple, governments are going to shut this down. Bitcoin represents a fundamental threat to dollar hegemony in the fiat system we live in. There's no way when this thing starts rolling downhill, they're going to let the snowball keep going. What's your thought on that and your response to that that piece of FUD? Well, so, I mean, there's no way that you can practically ban this asset. And if you do, it would be a mistake similar to like when we try to do prohibition on alcohol. People will still find a way to use it in this country. There'll be the speakeasy joints on the cybersecurity, you know, cyber web where people use Bitcoin anyway. So you're not going to effectively ban it. What I think that people have to realize is if it's a form of digital gold that also has exchange value, medium of exchange properties, that's super exciting. And and the government uh, should be embracing that, should be hodling itself, you know, starting to understand what it is, not be looking to ban it any more than if you saw a new form of gold that became valuable. Would you just try to go bury it back in the soil? No, I mean, you'd adjust and you'd recognize how this new value can help your society, can help your economy. And, you know, what makes me frustrated for um, blue collar workers, for everyone in this country is that we get so focused or wrapped around that, that, that uh, you know, Axel about, you know, a company that's going to pay some Bitcoin to a foreign adversary. When let's think about the fact that they're, they're not here. Like literally, if that's the worst that we face is that we have to pay off some Bitcoin over the next 10 years to our foreign adversaries, but we all live safe and sound lives and, and, and are protected every day and get to live in freedom. I mean, that's, I'm willing to deal with that. I'm a lot more willing to deal with that than people like with guns on our shores than I, you know, yeah. to deal with some folks Absolutely. penetrating from a cybersecurity standpoint. So like, I just really hope that we can reach a point in this country where we stop focusing so much on the danger of something that's not going anywhere should not be thought of as it needs to be put somewhere and just adapt like you would to any other technology, whether it's AI or 5G. Hmm. Yeah, let's improve our security. I think that's the bottom line. Like we can't have our, our holes in security so large that these guys are of easy access. The low hanging fruit is what's going to go first. And there's probably going to be a lot of jobs in cybersecurity, a lot more in the future. Yeah. And, and it's so ridiculous, too, because if you think about it now, we're talking about Bitcoin as like, oh, we have to sanction Bitcoin and the use of Bitcoin because of ransomware, because people are hacking our, you know, and affecting our supply chain. Like two years ago, it was all the banks getting hacked and we're losing all our identity. Right. <laughs> and, and yeah. Yeah. Now we have to protect the banks by banning Bitcoin or, or stopping Bitcoin from being used in these types of sanctions. Is it really, uh, are the really, is that really what the banks are worried about when it comes to Bitcoin? Yeah. I think they're more worried about being put out of business by Bitcoin. So. I feel like I'm just at the tip of the iceberg about what I could pick your brain on, but we'll have you on again at some point. Um, this was very practical, extremely helpful. Before we let you go, give us a handoff to you personally. Where can people find you and then what you're up to at Value Technology Foundation? Sure. Um, you can reach me at uh, Jason underscore VTF 
uh, on Twitter. And uh, Value Technology Foundation is always looking for opportunities. We just had a community of uh, Bitcoin miners put together an amazing project, uh, um, program for education for a lot of agencies in the government. So we can you know, talk about ways of whether it's a, a paper to discuss Bitcoin mining and understanding the amount of energy that it actually uses um, or anything else that we need to sort of dispel FUD on. We could be a, a think tank that maybe in D.C. could could fire back at FUD and uh, always welcome to hear any thoughts along those lines. Awesome. Thank you. I mean, everything you're doing in D.C., we appreciate it. Even all of us libertarians who don't want anything to do with it. We <laughs> we appreciate it. Sounds good. The Value Technology Foundation, the FUD Fire Foundation. This gives another, it's a, a nickname. I like it. We appreciate your time, Jason. Have a great rest of your day. Thanks, you too. Take care. See ya. Thanks for listening into the show. If you enjoyed this discussion, be sure to subscribe on whatever app you're using for podcasts. And if you have an extra minute, go ahead and leave us a review. You can also follow us on Twitter. We're at blue underscore collar BTC. We invite questions, comments, and inquiries of any kind, and our email is bluecollarbitcoinpodcast at gmail.com. We look forward to you joining us next time on the Blue Collar Bitcoin Podcast. Yeah, 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 yeah